Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Robert, thank you for taking some time to join me on today's show. Thank you for having me on, Owen. Good to catch up. Yeah, we're recording remotely. I'm based in Melbourne, and I believe you're based in Sydney? Yes, indeed. Based in Sydney, uh, where I've been living since I moved back from the USA about uh, 15 years ago. So, um, indeed. Perfect time to, uh, if you uh, bought a property 15 years ago in Sydney, I'm sure you're sitting pretty today. But mate, we're going to talk about your investment process, your investment philosophy, how you go about screening global companies, analyzing companies, and interestingly enough, how you think about risk, because I think this is quite unique. But at the start of these shows, I tend to just give you some rapid fire questions. You can think of these as like icebreakers, Rob. So these will be Short answer questions, kind of like I'm giving you a test, maybe if it's the CFA exam, multiple choice, as quick as you can, and we'll see where we go from there. My three questions that I've got from you, in January 2023, US inflation was 6.4%, or at least that's what trading economics told me. By January 2024, will inflation be closest to A, 2.5%, B, 5%, or C, 7.5%? Well, the answer to that, I think, is going to be B. It's going to be closer to to 5%. Certainly, it's going to be above 2.5%. Okay. So, right in the middle there, I always find when I'm doing a test, I normally just go for the middle one if I don't have a, if I don't, (laughs) if I, if I don't have a, have a clue. So, uh, I'm sure that we'll come to how you think about these things in just a moment. But number two is, which is more valuable for an investor, would you say? Having an extra standard deviation of EQ or emotional intelligence or an extra standard deviation of IQ? That's an interesting question. I think that I always believe that that EQ is quite important in dealing with markets because we believe that markets are irrational. And I think one needs to change one's mind. And I think that very, very, very intelligent people often find it very difficult to change their mind because they're always used to being right. And, and, and we know the markets can be illogical. So EQ is more important than IQ, I think. Number three of the final short answer question is, if you could take one investor, maybe even an author or a CEO to lunch, who would you take and why? Yeah, and this, this presumes that they're going to accept my invitation. <laughs> I take an economist called Diane Coyle. She's UK-based economist. And some of the stuff she writes on GDP, which is a pretty dry topic, 
is absolutely fascinating. And we use GDP and we throw it around and the so-called media experts throw this number around and they don't actually understand what's gone in there. And many investors use GDP. And I think that, that she's proposed a much better way to measure economic progress and happiness. And I think that will be a fascinating discussion. Uh, her book is called GDP and Affectionate History. And I'd like to tease that out with her much more than perhaps I think she's given credit and, and publicity. I love that. I love hearing about these thinkers or people that at least I've never come across. So that's one that's going on my list for sure. So thank you. I'm hoping just to dive straight into how you think about just investing generally. And and I think the place to start here is your investment philosophy. And sometimes I frame this, Robert, as the why. Why do you invest in a certain way? Because then we can get into the application and the process and how you actually go about doing that. But I'm curious because the way you invest seems very unique to me. I don't have many global managers come on the show and talk about the things that I'm thinking we're going to talk about. So can you just walk us through that? How do you, did you formulate your investment philosophy and express that through the fund? That's a broad topic. Let me deal with those numerous questions. That The philosophy has really been in place since I spent many, many years in the USA at, at a big US money manager in Boston. The philosophy is simply one of humility, which acknowledges that as an active manager, your competitive advantage is going to be small. There are plenty of very, very smart people out there who get the news flow as quickly as you do, if not before you do. They're doing all the work on the fundamental aspects of, of every business just as deeply as you are. And so your competitive advantage is, is likely to be quite small. And therefore, you need to both identify that competitive advantage and you need to make sure that you can maximize it. And if you believe your competitive advantage is in the ability to be contrarian, which we do think is quite important. If you believe your competitive advantage lies in the time horizon over which you analyze returns, which we think is also our advantage, we, we tend to look at three to five year time horizons. And then lastly, if you think your competitive advantage is the way you view the portfolio as an assembly of risks, which we do do, then I think that's another advantage that we bring to bear. So in terms of describing our philosophy, it's very much that we desire to be the hare in the race versus, sorry, the tortoise in the race <laughs> rather than the hare. And as we know, in the long run, the tortoise won the race by virtue of being a plodder. And that's how we like to think about our investing. Just to think about this in terms of like your mandate or how you think about your North Star. So you're effectively saying you're not here to take extreme amounts of risk for I guess, a very marginal rate of return. Is that, am I framing that correctly? Is in, you're very cognizant of the risk in pursuit of that investment philosophy. I think that's right. I think it's probably worth backing up and explaining how we d define risk. I think risk means many, many things to many, many people. And as far as we're concerned, in a portfolio management context, risk essentially is the identification of exposures to stock-specific events and also to what are called macro factors, things like oil prices or interest rates. But the exposure is measured relative to a benchmark. And I think that one of the differentiators, which has been for us very, you know, very beneficial, is the belief that benchmarks are quite difficult to beat. And if you can beat a benchmark, you're very likely to be beating all the other managers against whom you compete. And so, therefore, for us, the identification of a client-relevant benchmark, a passive set of stocks, is quite important. And we're very clear in, in talking to clients about 
what our beta or benchmark is. And then the risk that we take is measured as deviation from that benchmark. And if we can take risk in areas where we have a competitive advantage and make money from that risk, then we are indeed maximizing our return on risk. And that's how we think about it. So at an individual stock level, how do you assess risk versus, say, at the portfolio level? Are there any factors that you mentioned beta there? Is that something that you're kind of, you're managing for the portfolio as a whole? Are you targeting a beta outcome? So in terms of the stock-specific risk aspect, we obviously look at a company with respect to the future cash flows and dividend growth of the business. And obviously that the companies that have got higher levels of risk contained within them, whether it's due to the inherent nature of the business or the balance sheet, we tend to use a higher discount rate, which we require for that more risky stock. And so we, we deal with stock-specific risk by using different discount rates. But when you get to the portfolio as a whole, I think this is where a little bit of mathematics comes in. As you increase the number of names, the number of relationships, potential relationships between the companies increases very, very rapidly. If you've got 10 companies, you've got you know, the relationships that are essentially one company with nine other companies. And as you build a portfolio out with 100 companies, you've got an almost exponential increase in the number of potential relationships. And these relationships can be measured in terms of the way the companies move together, the way in which companies' profits move together, and the way in which the market views these companies' prospects as things change, such as interest rates or oil prices or taxation policy. And so the portfolio risk as a whole is very much more important than individual stock risk. And I think this is one area where we think global managers or, in fact, Australian equity managers tend to struggle. They like to look at the portfolio as being a collection of individually chosen best stocks. But in fact, the portfolio behaves very differently depending on the way in which you've put those stocks and chosen those stocks. And it's like having I suppose, a football team, if you like the idea of scoring goals, you're going to pick nine centre forwards, 10 centre forwards. That's not a balanced portfolio. That's not a balanced team. And what we do is we try and make sure that the sum of the parts is greater than the individual parts added together. It requires a fair degree of mathematics, and we do use quite a lot of sophisticated software. But it has meant that our returns are very stable relative to the benchmark, which is nice and positively so. I've got a few questions around this. The first one is when you put this portfolio together and you think about the risk between positions, does it so happen that you are deliberately targeting sectors that may be correlated or uncorrelated? Or is it, does it just so happen that it turns out a portfolio is agnostic to that type of constraint and you end up with just a mixed bag of uncorrelated positions, if that makes sense? It does make sense. And in fact, it's more the latter than the former. That is to say, we don't set the portfolio up using so-called top-down views or top-down beliefs. So we don't set the global equity portfolio up saying, we think that Europe is going to outperform the USA, therefore we need to be overweight Europe. We don't do that. What we do do is we use a set of quantitatively based criteria, which we use to screen the global universe, and then we verify whether those companies are indeed attractive. And we end up with something like 200 portfolio candidates. And from those 200 stocks, we try to build a portfolio subject to certain amounts of risk that we think we're prepared to take. The risk parameters that we take can be set 
through what's called an optimization process. And think of it essentially as tethering a goat to a stake. You're quite happy for the goat to wander, but you don't want it off the reservation. And the length of the rope, which is tethering the goat, is best thought of as the tracking error or active risk of the portfolio. And we can find that typically to around about 5% relative to the, the benchmark. And what that means is that if we do our job properly, we will make an excess return of up to about 5% per annum relative to the benchmark. And it doesn't sound much. And many, many managers will say, well, gee, what do you do during the down years? Didn't you go to cash, et cetera? In the long run, over which I think it's best to judge managers, we found that if you beat the benchmark by anything between 3 and 5% per annum consistently, you will beat all the other managers who are essentially not tethered in terms of risk to that benchmark. So it gets back to the idea of being the tortoise in the race. If you've got a particular set of competitive advantages, keep using them. And you have to keep using them during the periods when obviously it works. And obviously, you have to keep using them during the more difficult periods when it doesn't work. And I think that's when the metal of portfolio managers tends to get tested is when their investment process is not working. Do you change the process or do you keep going? Mm. And we so often see style drift amongst managers. I just got, this is not my follow-up question to your earlier point, but what is the most common use of the fund in a client's portfolio? So when they come and meet with you, where are they allocating and why are they allocating to you? Right. First thing to say is I think global equity exposure ought to be a big part of any investor's risk assets, not just Australia, but also you know US-based and Japanese-based. I think that the global universe has you know, many companies that domestic markets don't have and different kinds of risks. So diversification is very, very important. And in fact, one of the things that successfully happened here since we came back 15 years ago, there is an international exposure now that's expected to be in excess of 20, 25%. So with that assumption that people are comfortable with global equities, we argue that the best thing we can do is to provide that consistency of return. And therefore, as they allocate to managers, probably won't get all of that allocation, but we certainly ought to get some of that allocation because we're a very good complement to existing equity managers who may be a little bit more open to style drift, they're more open to market timing. That is to say, they'll go into cash or they'll, they'll go into more risky assets when they think the time is right. We don't do that. And so we're consequently a very good if you like, a very good sort of anchor to windward here. So when the water gets choppy, you know as a client that we won't be moving around and doing style drift and chasing hot returns and panicking. So give us some of your money, but not all of it, perhaps half of your global equity allocation, that would be great. It's a point you touch on, which a lot of self-directed investors tend to miss, which is that if you are thinking of constructing a portfolio and you have these allocations, if the manager starts to drift away from their core competency, it's actually a disservice, even if that means that the manager struggles for a little while because it's maybe the cyclical factors at play. And a lot of investors tend to think, well, the manager should be doing more to save my capital. But then when they style drift, they can drift into other parts of the portfolio which were unintended. And so you want your manager to stick to their knitting. I think it's a great point you touch on there. No, I, I don't. Sorry to interrupt, Owen. I just think that cannot be repeated enough. I mean, even so-called professional planning financial advisors, even some of the so-called institutional accounts, they they misunderstand what the importance of being in control of beta is. If they've set the investment policy framework, 
the last thing they want is to have beta drift or style drift from the managers to which they've allocated that capital. What they really want is a manager to beat the beta. And yet we see people getting disappointed with managers because they said they would do. So, so that, that's an incredibly important you know, part of the, the client dialogue, we think, is, is saying, look, you know, you're in charge of the asset allocation. We're going to add value through beating that particular benchmark you've assigned to us. One of the follow-up questions that I had for you before was you mentioned when you get to the stock-specific level for a riskier business, you might use a higher discount rate, for example. But maybe we can park that and come back to it in this next question that I have for you, which is around the actual process that you have. And on the TAMIM website, there's kind of a breakdown and various discussions. I've seen this before where you talk about this idea of VMQ, and I'll let you kind of like decipher that for us around idea gen and finding companies. But then once you find the companies, you move to something called ASG. And we'll break that down again around the verification of that idea. So we've got idea generation through to idea verification. If you can walk us through that. Sure, we'll do so. I think both are equally, both are, are important, equally important. VMQ is um, shorthand for value, momentum and quality. It was actually derived from the time in the mid-90s to the early 2000s and beyond when I was in the USA, working with a bunch of, of very smart so-called quantitative folks. And we built what's called a multi-factor model. And that model simply acknowledges there are many things that drive share prices. Valuation matters, but you know, stocks that are attractively valued don't always perform over a reasonable time period. They can remain value stocks for a while. There is a, a return that's associated with momentum, momentum being the increase in an earnings expectations projected by the sell side momentum, if you like, is an acknowledgement that there is a FOMO, there's a fear of missing out. And when a company starts to increase earnings estimates, the news flow increases, and there is a flow of funds to that company. So that momentum factor provides a timing device, if you like. There's a, a cheap stock with rising estimates or good momentum that is much more attractive than a company that is merely cheap where there is no momentum. And lastly, quality matters. Quality being the ability of the company to withstand adverse shocks, whether it's a good balance sheet or whether it's a company with lots of free cash flow or a company that indeed is, is able to reduce its share count by buybacks. These are all aspects of company fundamentals that at times are extremely valuable. So for the moment, for example, We've seen a very significant sell-off in the marketplace in the last year or two of technology companies that are loss-making. So during the mad bubble and the COVID-induced increase in that bubble, so-called technology companies that weren't making any money were performing particularly well. They ranked incredibly lowly on our quality factor, and so we avoided buying those sorts of companies. So the combination of valuation, momentum, and quality, and we use it in what's called a blended multi-factor model, that provides us with an estimated relative return of all the companies, about the 5,000 global companies that are available to investors. And that's the starting point for what we then move on to, which is called ASG, or accounting, strategic, and governance. And those simply are the lenses, fundamental lenses through which we then seek verification of the quantitative model. It may be a company looks incredibly attractive based upon valuation, momentum, and quality, but we identify something 
through the accounting or the governance lens that, that really gives us a problem. It's probably jumping on a bandwagon now, but we've always been very, very leery of Indian companies because of the governance issue. And so even if the Indian companies were terribly attractive on the VMQ, we would override the VMQ through the ASG lens. Many companies also cheat or use very aggressive accounting techniques, whether it's premature revenue recognition or whether it's a failure to adequately depreciate their assets. We can have airline companies, for example, depreciating planes over 15 years and some depreciate them over seven years. Well, the life of, a, of an airline is probably a lot shorter than 15 years before it starts to become obsolete. So the accounting aspects are also very important. We need a company that's actually being true and conservative, if you like, in the way that it, it treats both its revenue and its profits, as well as accounting for all sorts of other things, such as finance leases or operating leases. Pension funds are an enormous problem in the USA at the moment under sort of FASB 87 and then the healthcare under FASB 106. There are some quite serious obligations that are being under-recognized by the marketplace. And so these are the kinds of things that we like to bring to the table. In fact, if we don't like a stock based on ASG, we won't invest in the company, even though it scores very well on a VMQ basis. And sometimes that sort of hurts insofar as the the quad model was right and we were wrong. Mm. I've got two follow-ups there. And I'm just hoping you can expand on these however far you want to go. Is The comment about Indian companies, for those Australian investors who aren't familiar, what are some of the typical hiccups you run into there or the roadblocks that you run into with the governance there? I think everyone is going to be aware of Adani. And I think before that, multiple years ago, there was a problem with a company called Satcham. Um, it's basically intercompany transactions that take place. There's, there's probably a fair degree of what you might call skimming that goes on. So shareholders don't always necessarily get the profit to which they're entitled because money is being skimmed off. And, and, and then you have other issues with respect to you know political connections and other things too. And there's, there's geopolitical risk, right? And so far as the USA in particular has, has got these policies with respect to companies paying for contracts, government contracts. So there's a lot of risk out there. And the US regulators are getting much more aggressive about pursuing foreign companies. And they can do so because the US controller of the currency argues that any transaction in US dollars comes under US jurisdiction. So these governance issues aren't confined to the company, to the country in which the company is operating, they can, if you like, prompt prompt other regulators to have a look at it. So it's much better for us if we steer clear of these. And then the second one is something that I'm familiar with, which is the risk of pension liabilities like piling up in the United States. But for those investors who maybe aren't as familiar being uh, here in Australia, where we've got the superannuation system, um, where it's typically contribution style model from employers, can you just explain that risk and what you look for there? So buried deep at the back of the accounts of many companies are the actuarial comments on defined benefit schemes such as they still exist, and they do still exist on some of the books of companies. And the actuarial estimates are to do with the projected benefit obligations of the company to the retiring and retired workforce relative to the value of the plan assets. And because of the way in which we've had zero interest rates for many, many years, 
the projected benefit obligations of these plans are much bigger than the accumulated assets. So, you know, particularly old companies, I think, and I'd need to refresh my knowledge on this, perhaps, but the largest sort of US companies with a problem in this area were the auto companies. And increasingly, actually, in the USA, the states also funding, you know, Illinois, California, that they're finding also that they don't have enough money in the plans to meet their obligations. And something will have to give at some point. Wasn't well publicized was that the Biden administration bunged quite a bit of money to Illinois to make up the public sector pension shortfalls. And so this is going to be a problem, not just in the USA, but it is going to be a problem for the USA corporate sector and the public sector. Australia is in a much much better position because it was much quicker and more aggressive in moving to what we would know as defined contribution schemes, which is essentially where you own your your own individual pension. But a company is going to have to find the money to pay or they default. Off the top of your head, you may not know this, but have we had any instances of well-known companies or governments defaulting yet? Or has that not happened? I can't think of any off the top of my head. Default can come in in a number of ways. I mean, obviously, the easiest way for a government to default is to raise the retirement age. And that's been going on, of course. The the retirement age is, you know, I think 67 and and rising. Then, of course, the other way to to default is to have essentially a, a certain amount of managed inflation, which, of course, reduces the the obligations in real terms. There are other ways to default. You can change. You, know, you can change the the yardstick against which you measure the increase in defined benefit payments. You can move to an inflation index, which is lower than the previous inflation index. And the UK did that, you know, quite successfully. There are ways that default can occur. The obvious way to default is to change the value of what you're paying. And at the moment, in France, for example where the government is trying to to raise the retirement age, that can provoke public outcry. And in fact, there are a number of strikes and protests on the streets in France due to the desire of the government to raise the retirement age. This is something that is a slow burn. It's it's what's essentially known as a a slow-moving car crash, and we are heading for it unless we have some reappraisal of what either A, is allowable as contributions, savings rate contributions to pension schemes, Or we see a return to more normal interest rates, which will reduce the future obligations of the pension funds. That would be very beneficial. Or we have a cut in in what's expected. And I think some sort of measure of all three is is quite likely. But from an investment point of view, we, we would sort of care mostly about the company deficiencies. And, you know, to that end, we'd sort of care about, we'd care about that. And we'd try and understand what risk there was. I remember looking at uh, Ford Motor Company and seeing some of the liabilities. It obviously had a huge amount of debt anyway, but also the liabilities from pensions and defined pensions is was like, it was eyebrow raising to say the least. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's, it's actually one of the biggest problems that we face, and not just in the USA. I mean, there are some other issues in other countries and it may be getting better, but, but you know, when we looked at this in Germany, for example, many of the German pension schemes are actually invested in the physical assets of the business, which is a little bizarre because it fails the diversification test. Yeah. Anyway, it's a very arcane topic and one which I think is probably a serious turnoff for most <laughs> investors. But nonetheless, it does matter if a company has to top up a pension fund, 
that means that there's less cash available to reinvest in the business. It also means there's less cash to pay out as dividends. And I think it's important to acknowledge that the only thing you're guaranteed to get from an equity investment is a dividend payment, whether it's now or in the future. The share price is not guaranteed to go up, but the dividend payment is much, much more likely to be made and much more stable than the share price. So if a company is having to top up a pension fund and doesn't have the ability to reinvest and re-energize its capital base to generate future profits, and if it can't pay a dividend or increase the dividend, then that matters. Mm, absolutely. We like to think we, we can avoid some of the worst impending traffic accidents by looking at this kind of thing. There was one more thing that happens, I believe, in your ASG, the accounting strategic governance kind of like process that you follow. And this is all available on the website. If you go to the Tamim website and the Global High Conviction process page, this is all spelled out there. But there's one here which I think is interesting under strategic, which is how distressed are competitors? So that's like a question that you ask is how distressed are the competitors of this business? And I'm curious to know how you would think about that. How do you think about when you're researching your company, why this is such an important question to ask? I think this question stems from the humility to which I referred earlier on, I think that there are plenty of companies that compete against each other, and that's how capitalism works. The idea that companies should be in oligopolies and monopolies is, is just incorrect, and, and you know regulations and regulators exist to try and prevent that happening. But, but nonetheless, companies can create significant advantages through better investment or through essentially being at the leading edge. And for a while, of course, the digital advertising platforms that, that we call Alphabet or Google and, and Meta, they essentially had free reign to acquire businesses left, right and center. And they did so. And I think at one point we're taking, between them, we're taking 70 cents in every digital advertising dollar. That's changing. And it's changing not because of increased competition, but it's changing because of regulation. And so we need to look at a company's strategic position, not just relative to other companies that might be entering the industry, but also because of the strategic position relative to what governments are trying to do and, and indeed should be doing. We, however, of course, like companies that have got dominant market position are, and are investing heavily to preserve that market position. And an example of a positive development, if you like, what's called the metrology business, the semiconductor production equipment business, where essentially there are two companies that dominate this globally. One is called KLA, a US company, and the other is called Hitachi Hitech. Now, we were fortunate enough to be owning Hitachi Hitech several years ago when the parent company, Hitachi, bought them out. But that meant that KLA, the US company, was with a 50% market share in metrology equipment was essentially the obvious listed entity in which to invest in what is a secular growth industry. Notwithstanding some cyclicality, the penetration of semiconductors and all things digital is continuing. And in order to build these things, you need to have equipment that tests the effectiveness and the accuracy of the constituent parts of the semiconductor building process. And that is KLA. And so with a 50% market share, they are very likely to be able to set pricing as well as very likely to be able to 
dominate, continue to dominate. And to the best of our knowledge, there are no new competitors entering this industry, which is very capital intensive. And to the best of our knowledge, there are no government regulations that are looking at increasing or forcing increased competition. In fact, if anything, with the the CHIPS Act, what's called the CHIPS Act, you're very likely to see in the USA essentially a duplication of capital investment in semiconductor production equipment. The CHIPS Act is designed to reduce the technological leak into China and is providing subsidy rightly or wrongly, we think wrongly, but it's uh, providing public subsidy to companies to set up fab plants in the USA. That's very likely to benefit KLA in the long run. So that's an example of a strategic position which is very, very beneficial. And so that's the way we like to think about a company. A company can be cheap for a reason because its future profits are going to be impaired by more competition coming into that particular space. And if capitalism is working, then of course capital gets attractive to areas where the return on capital is supernormal. And that reversion to the mean is a key tenet in our philosophy. That is to say, we always expect return on capital to increase where it is deficient because people will exit businesses and the survivor will win. And we also expect capital to enter industries where there are supernormal returns on that capital. And so this reversion to the mean is a key part of what we look for. And it sort of speaks again to the way in which we quite like to be contrarian. We like to buy things when they're unpopular and we like to sell things when they're very, very popular. We found that works in the long run. I find that's a really interesting example. And as you were talking about KLA, I was reminded of the Australian company Altium, which does printed circuit board software. And its primary competitor, I would say, uh, which was Mentor Graphics, was bought out by Siemens not too long ago. And so it was brought into this mothership of digital transformation and manufacturing companies. And I think what we've seen since then is Altium's been a better business, not necessarily because of that, it was already on that trajectory, but that consolidation was almost like a distraction for the industry and for Mentor. And while Cadence Systems and Altium caught up to it, that was in being integrated at Mentor, but then these other two were just reinvesting and growing and capturing more share and attention, which is really interesting. So that's why I singled that point that you have in your strategic piece there, because I think not enough investors take the time to carefully consider the alternatives. And sometimes the alternative is a better company and it gives you a better idea. So, I mean, we could talk about this all day, Robert. There's one thing that I really wanted to talk to before we begin to wrap things up. And this is a recent paper, a white paper, the 5Ds framework, debasement, demographics, deglobalization, and decarbonization. Now, this is quite a lengthy report. And um, I got sent this by Darren from Tamim. And I'm yet to make my way fully through the entirety of the report because it's quite comprehensive. And so I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to go further on this. But I'd love to know, basically, if you could give us kind of the maybe however far you want to go into it, maybe like the executive summary and give us a, like t- explain why people should read this because it's very interesting. And I'm particularly interested in the, the deglobalization piece. These are some really interesting thematics in multiple ways. And I just want to kind of know about what, like what went into the research and kind of the key findings, if you like. Sure. I probably should apologize for the fact that it's a rather tortured title. We were looking for some sort of alliteration, and I'm afraid we settled on the letter D because we could sort of get most of those themes to to start with with a D. Um, Typically, when times are, quote-unquote, normal, the global macro 
you know, factors don't really matter. I mean, ever since I started this in the early 80s, we sort of accepted that capitalism works, tax rates should come down, there wasn't an, inf- an inflation problem globally, the power of the, the labor market and the power of companies was broadly in line. And there was the occasional sort of bubble, of course. And we had 87, and then we had 91, and then we had the Y2K. But but generally speaking, we've had a very settled macro backdrop. We wrote this piece because we think now we're sort of seeing some doubts creep in to whether the existing framework, global framework, to which we've been accustomed in the last 40 years, we're seeing some doubts creep in as to whether it's the right way forward in this country. For example, the Labour government is talking about, you know, mobilising private pensions for for social infrastructure, housing. And, and so I think we're sort of potentially seeing a return to the 50s and 60s, which is a very, very different big government kind of framework. And we wrote this really just to sort of tease out what some of the consequences would be for investors if we did see a big swing away from private sector enterprise or private enterprise and the encouragement of private enterprise towards a much more sort of government intervention model. And essentially, the deglobalization came about as a result of reading a paper by a group called the Heinrich Foundation, a US organization that specializes in looking at global trade. I have an ex-colleague who works there, a fellow called Stuart Patterson, and he and some colleagues wrote an article pondering whether under Donald Trump you were starting to see the realization that the USA had given far too much away to China in terms of technological donations. And during the COVID period, President Trump also invoked the defense, I think it's called the Defense Procurement Act of 1950, to force companies General Motors and 3M, to make respirators and face masks. And the Heinrich Foundation posited that we were beginning to see a breakdown of the global supply chains, and we were beginning to see national industrial policy come back. And I think that those thoughts three, four years later have indeed come to pass. Donald Trump's slogan was make America great again. I think the Biden administration is America first. But as far as we can tell, there's not a lot of difference between the policy as it hits the ground running. And so as the USA uses public money to replenish, refresh, favor US organizations, I think you're going to see a degree of retaliation globally. You're beginning to see not just a an increase in trade barriers, but you're beginning to see an increase in government subsidy for industries, which is not always a good thing, of course, because when governments start to get involved, I was taught anyway that productivity tends to fall. Governments typically don't make good decisions because they're very insensitive to the price signals that come back from the marketplace. And so the deglobalization trend, we think, is going to lead to some winners and losers, and it's going to be a very different backdrop from what we've been used to. I think back to India, it does have some interesting implications for a country like India, which with 1.4 billion people would like to become an economic superpower. But unlike the period in which China managed to make its transition, it isn't clear to us that India is going to be given quite such largesse as China was given. So China received a lot of foreign direct investment. There was a lot of insistence by China that 
there was technological transfer so the Chinese could learn very quickly some of the investing tricks and process tricks from the West. It's not clear to us that that's going to be the case any longer, nor is it clear to us that running seriously undervalued exchange rates to bigger build up big foreign exchange reserves is also going to be accommodated now in this new environment of national industrial policy. This means for investors, of course, that returns on capital are quite likely to fall. It means more government involvement, perhaps more capricious legislation. And it means that risk will generally go up and therefore returns will have to be higher. And if returns aren't higher to compensate for the increased risk, then the asset class known as global equities may be something that returns you 7% a year and not the 12% a year that we've been accustomed to. So that was the point about deglobalization. It is interesting to us to watch a company that should benefit from US increased US subsidies, such as Intel. But Intel seems to be struggling at the moment, having taken a series of missteps. So this isn't guaranteed that the taps get turned on and there's plenty of free money for companies. This is going to require a retooling and several years of investment before these fab plants, for example, are up and running. So it's a significant change and probably a dislocation. It's really interesting. And I think that would be something personally that until at least 2030, something that we all as investors and a community, we have to watch very closely and very carefully, particularly depending on where, even if we are investing in domestic companies, where their revenue comes from, where their business is operating. I will direct people's attention into the report because there was a significant number of companies that were included in this kind of breakdown of these five Ds, if you like, where businesses could be impacted, including like an Australian business, Rio Tinto. So if you are interested in getting to into the meat of this and into the meat of what Robert and his team have put together, there will be a link available in the show notes. And while I'm on that, I've got to say thank you to the Australian Shareholders Association for, for putting us in contact, for putting us in contact with Robert. If you want to find out more about Robert, there'll be a link in the show notes to the fund, as well as his profile on the website. I was hoping to finish with one question, which is more philosophical, but it often teases out some of the really interesting insights. And I figure since I'm getting brilliant investors on the show like yourself, over the course of a season, we can get some a catalog of really unique uh, insight. And my final question is this one. What do you believe about finance, investing, or business that few people would agree with you on? <laughs> There's probably quite a few things that I believe that many, many people would quite vociferously disagree with me on. Um, let's be controversial. I think that pursuing oil and gas companies and obsessing about carbon dioxide emissions is, is slightly mad. I think we're much better off focusing on pollution with respect to plastics and pollution with respect to air quality than we are on carbon dioxide. I also think that we should focus on climate change with respect to microclimate. So we're building, stupidly building cities using concrete, pouring concrete like crazy. And the microclimate effect is enormously damaging because of the heat ambience from the concrete, the reflected heat. And we, we're not replacing, perversely, we're not replacing the trees that we're taking down with more trees within the cities. So that's that's the first sort of thing I would say. And at this point during a dinner party, I'm normally being kicked under the table by my wife for for saying these things, but let's move on. In terms of directly where we, where I think I'm, I'm a little bit sort of weird, if you like, in these areas, I think that one ought to be comfortable 
going into a stock market when it's on sale. And what I mean by that is it's it's difficult. We we find it difficult, but you go into a shop and you buy things that you want to buy when it says sale on the door. And yet, when it comes to the stock market, we do the opposite. We panic out of stocks, risk assets when they're on sale, when the price is falling. And we really, really, really like to load up on things that are popular when the prices are rising. And it's it's a very understandable but very, very strange habit. And it can be quite expensive because if you're all forever buying things high and selling them low, over the course of a multi-year investing period, and most people don't put all their money in on year on day one, they put it in over a period of time, the volatility of return matters. And you're much, much better off taking a deep breath and holding on and getting the white knuckle ride by buying in down markets. And so at the moment, our argument is don't chase stocks. You should be comfortable buying companies that pay you dividends, settle for 7 to 8%. But if, if the market gets sold off, don't panic out. And we often find people think that that's insane. We find that people like to time market exposure. Portfolio managers love the idea of being good asset allocators. And time and time again, the data proves that that's very, very difficult to do. And so our, our our approach is to be always fully invested. And that can be a little weird, I think, relative to what other people think. Oh, you're backing yourself. I guess that's where the name, you know, high conviction comes from, right? And uh, I think those those two answers are fantastic, especially the first. I'm lucky we're doing this remote. I'm not kicking you onto the table, even if you were in person. But uh, Robert, I do really appreciate you taking the time out uh, to chat with us and to, on behalf of the Australian Shareholders Association, also the RAS community. Thank you for just departing some of your wisdom. And um, for anyone that wants to follow up with Robert, uh, you can find a link to his profile in the show notes. So once again, thanks for joining me. I mean, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks indeed for your time. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.